Just before we get started, I want to share with you one of our sponsors and a secret to our success. I don't know about you, but I got into commercial property to build a more passive income. But how do you manage multiple clients and contracts in multiple buildings without spending all of your time on endless spreadsheets? After a lot of research, we use Office R&D, the best flexible workspace software to manage our CMO buildings, co-working and flexspace. For starters, the automated bill run saves hours of work and means we don't miss any revenue. Plus, I can get many reports on the performance of each product and location. But here's the real clincher. We all need to focus on customers more and our clients can now use our app to access buildings, book meeting rooms, review their invoices. And there's a great feature where they can interact with our member community. And this is all managed from within the Office R&D platform. There's a partner link in the show notes so you can book a demo. Take a look, see how the system can improve your operations and customer experience. Right, make yourself comfortable. Let's get on with today's show. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. I want to give you the knowledge and confidence to move from residential investment into commercial property investment. That's what this show is all about. I remember when I tried to make the move from resi to commercial myself over 15 years ago and how difficult it was to understand all the different facets of this great industry and nobody seemed to want to help. But I stuck with it and boy was it worth it. I want to help other investors now make that transition too. So as a follow-up to episode 29 when I talked about the similarity of some strategies between residential and commercial investment. Today I'm going to go into more information about the different sectors and give you some more strategies. There are so many facets to commercial property that when you're getting started it can be just too much to take in. And I'm not going to cover every single strategy out there, but I do have 12 that I'm going to go into later on. But first, I need to clarify what the different sectors are. Remember, residential is often covered by just one or two planning classifications, in terms of local government planning rules, that is, but commercial can be divided up into many. That's what can really make the sector seem a bit more complicated than it really is. I'm going to divide this into two sections, right? So firstly, the extra layers of commercial in terms of classifications, and then secondly, I'm going to go into the strategies you can apply to some or even all of those different types of commercial property. Stick with me. If you can get your head around the different layers, then it'll become a lot clearer and a bit less muddy. It's worth pointing out at this stage, I'm not looking at the individual planning or city planning classifications here. Each country and even some regions have different planning frameworks, so I can't possibly cover them all. Even between Scotland and England, where I am, we have a different system, you know, just because we like to do the same thing twice in our country, which is ever efficient as usual. But even between those two regions, we have different planning regulations and rules. So I'm going to use Scotland as an example for just now. And specifically, we have the following property classes. We've actually got 11 property classifications. You need to ask Uncle Google for the classifications that will affect you and your part of the world. But for Scotland, here are those 11. And I say, you know, here's the 11 right now, because currently this is what they are, but they've even been changed quite recently and they're subject to change quite a lot. So just quickly running through them, class one is shops, 
Class 2 is financial and professional services. Class 3 is food and drink. That kind of makes sense. Class 4 is business. Okay, business, right. Class 5, general industrial. Class 6, storage and distribution or, or distribution. Class 7, hotels and hostels. Class 8, residential institutions. Now, that includes things like um, residential care or residential schools. Plus, there's even a subclass here for secure residential institutions. And then you've got class 9, which is houses. Woohoo! There's residential. Class 10, non-residential institutions. So that's things like creches, museums, public libraries, um, churches even. And then class 11 is assembly and leisure, which includes things like bingo, swimming pools, gyms, that sort of thing. So... I don't want to bamboozle you with loads of details here. The point of this exercise is to try and simplify it rather than make it sound even more complicated. At the end of the day, as investors, the question we want to know is what are the key strategies that we can employ for commercial investment? Knowing the sectors of the market can really help you decide which areas to specialise in. So let's just cover five sectors that most investors use to describe the various categories that I just went through within the commercial property market. Remember, this is sectors, not specific strategies. We'll come on to those next. So of those five sectors, here's the first one. And you'll be familiar with all of them, but the first one more so than most probably, which is retail. And wow, retail is being pummeled right now. Retail isn't just the corner shop though and it's not just a large space in a retail park or indeed a large um, branded unit in the centre of the city. It can be all sorts of things. It can be shopping centre, a row of small convenience stores, single let units or a parade of shops as some people call them. This sector is experiencing huge change right now, there's no doubt about that. So look at those larger shifting trends out there, but bear in mind, these are usually too general for where you and I might be investing, and you must add in your local market demands. So for instance, are you looking at space in the city centre right now, or space out in the suburbs or even in a commuter town? There are huge changes affecting both of these markets, that city centre and non-city centre, but in different ways. For instance, Commuters who are not commuting right now still need their haircut or to pick up something locally. Let's be clear, this is not a new phenomenon. It is the quickening of a trend that was already in flow. Technology, flexible working and lifestyle choices are all leading to more business taking place outside of the city centres. Another fact to remember is that often the pundits and commentators are talking about a specific part of retail. So if you're looking at the newspapers, the Sunday papers, or even online, and you're picking up articles about the condition of retail market, that's all well and good. But often they might be just talking about retail on Oxford Street in London or large shopping malls. These are generally for institutional investors or publicly listed investment companies, some of which are sector specific, such as shopping centres, or more generalist. But these assets are not really what smaller active private investors are investing in. So don't take the commentary as directly affecting what you're thinking of doing. More on that in a minute, but let's cover off the other sectors. 
So the second one is office, office space. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast. And there's actually three ways that commentators describe this space or office space. And that's class A, there's that word again, but class A, that is premium space with above market rent. Something that somebody's prepared to pay more than the average because of the quality of the space. Class B, which is more general space, catering to kind of a wider range of the market. And then there's Class C, which is functional space, generally let out at under the average market rent. So the pundits or the uh, surveyors you might talk to or agents may talk about office space and just throw out there, oh yeah, this is Class A or Class B or Class C space. Well, now you know what the differences are. The third sector is leisure, which does include things like hospitality, hotels, restaurants, cinemas, I mean, basically play space. I put hot food in there too. These are all things that people or public would, they're direct to the public and they uh, are things that they like to do in their spare time or things that they would like to do with their families. And then the fourth one is industrial and storage. This sector for me is basically the shed sector. And our job really is to work out what is the best possible use for the specific shed we're looking at. Whether we're letting out to one company, splitting it down, putting in self-storage, it's still an industrial shed. Self-storage is sometimes put into the other or miscellaneous category, but I'm going to include it in here anyway. Because I think the main thing about industrial and storage from our point of view is what can we put into this unit that is going to give us a higher return? And the big trend in sheds right now, which again is the sort of thing you might be seeing on the headlines, which is leading to a lot of new buildings, is large corporate fulfillment centres. A lot of businesses going online, right? So a lot of these people need larger and often regional fulfillment centres. So when you're travelling around, you'll see these huge sheds going up. And that's just one of those trends that you're seeing play out in front of you. However, at the other end of the scale, there is and has been a shortage of units of up to 1,500 square feet, maybe 2,000. And this, this shortage has been there for quite a while. And as more people set up their own businesses through choice or even necessity, because they might be getting made redundant, this requirement's only going to increase. Office packing, picking and storage areas are key for some of the newer generation of tenants, people that maybe have gone online, they've started an online business, but now they're actually needing to move out of the home, they're needing to move into a small space, not a 15, 20, 30,000 square foot shed, they just want something small, something they can put in an office with an internet connection, have a picking area and a storage area. Needs good transport links as well. But that's a sector of the market that really um, has not been catered to very well and is still a growing demand. And industrial and storage in general right now is holding up well. So the fifth sector is the other sector, which is things like care homes, doctor surgeries, dentists, really specialist locations. So there's your five. Now, let's actually move on to the strategies. Let's talk about alternative strategies that can be applied to these different sectors. Because understanding the sectors is fine, but and you could, for instance, go for a specific sector as part of your strategy. So, for instance, you might just focus on industrial, and that's all and well and good. In fact, 
I went back and forth a bit about whether I should include all the sectors within the strategy bit, but I think having them separate should maybe help a bit more. So let's dive into the strategies. The first thing to think about is do you want to be an active investor? Strategy one. Or do you want to be a passive investor? Strategy two. This is actually the overarching strategy choice from which all others flow. Are you going to be an active or a passive investor? It will have an impact on whether you want to use leases or perhaps more flexible options for customers such as licences to occupy. It will affect the geography of where you invest, the type of asset you're looking for and the security of the tenancy that you want. So an active investor is somebody who's willing to really roll up their sleeves. They don't necessarily want to buy an asset that already has a tenant in that is producing an income for the next 15 years. That tends to be more for the passive investor. That's somebody who has some money they want to park. They want to put it into some safe, secure income. And it might be, as I say, it's a 15-year lease that they're putting their money into and they're basically buying an income. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And I have bought some properties like that. But for me, the active investor is where you can create more value. And that, in turn, often means you've created more cash flow. And if, like me, you want to hold on to your properties, then that additional cash flow creates additional value, which allows you to leverage for the next property. But passive investment can work well if you are earning good money somewhere else outside the industry and you just want to be able to park it in some commercial property that's going to give you a good income. And where you're investing your time right now produces more money than it would if you were investing it in commercial. And that's absolutely fine. So choosing whether you want to be active or passive early on does help with a lot of choices later on. And, and well, maybe when you've got that clear in your head, it will allow you to make decisions on when opportunities come past you about whether you want to do them or not. For instance, running a even though it sounds great and it is a great part of the business, which is self-storage, actually building or fitting out self-storage units is one thing, but actually managing them is quite different. That's very active unless you have um, a business or people looking after it for you. Whereas buying an industrial shed with a large, well-known brand in there that has a strong covenant, there are some of those falling by the wayside just now, but they have a strong covenant, that might be much more of a passive investment and that might suit your strategy. So the third strategy is single lets. And that's where the passive investor might find um, more comfortable. It's where they find potentially an already let property and they're buying that income, as I say. It's effectively buy to let. It might be that you buy, refurb, do the building up, present it in a different way, and then still do a single let, but to a new company. And people will do that. They'll have single let shops, they might have single let industrial units, and they're dotted around. And that's fine, nothing wrong with that strategy. The fourth one is multi-let rather than single. This might include putting in subdivision if it's not already there, and as most of you will know, CMO or commercial multiple occupancy is definitely my favourite. It's one of the strategies we've developed over the years, really um, specialise in that now. It is more active though, there's no doubt about it. It's a more of an active pursuit, but the returns can be very good. And there's a few ways of looking at it. One is that you do a fully service model within multi-let, which is where you maybe even have a member 
of staff or your team there on site looking after that building. And that's one way of running commercial multi-lets. And that's fine. That's serviced. Another way is maybe managed, which is where there's somebody going between buildings, but there's nobody specifically there all the time. They maybe book up um, meetings or viewings and it's managed. And that might be by an agent. Wouldn't necessarily recommend that myself. Or it might be by, again, a member of your team, but they're spread over maybe more than one site. They're looking after several sites. There's no expectation from customers that you're going to be there all the time, but that you are going to be in the area on a reasonably regular basis. And that kind of leads on to the third one of Multilet, which is more technology-enabled sites. So as technology developing, even over the last three or four years, is making running sites remotely more and more easy to do and it's more accessible now for most of us. So an example of that might be putting in a door access system using detection, um, security fobs or smartphones for allowing people to get access, egress from buildings in terms of fire, being able to regulate how many people are in the building. If there's an issue, you know how many are in there by checking on um, technology. You might put an intercom on the door if it's a multi-tenanted property. And that might include a number for reception, which isn't actually in that building. It might be a video entry system, which would connect with somebody who isn't in that building. And it might be somebody, again, in your team in another building, or indeed a third party who's put that work out to somebody else, and you pay them a flat fee or perhaps a call fee, whichever it is. So there are ways of making these buildings much more hospitable and the appearance of somebody being there, but actually you can still do it more remotely. And even things like meeting rooms can be given access control with a time-limited access code, which again is managed remotely. So multi-let doesn't have to be full-on active uh, investment. There are various layers there you can try to reduce your input. And of course, some multi-let buildings, actually they're run by agents. They're not run by the owner. The lease lengths are slightly longer and effectively the only thing that's making them uh, communal is the communal areas, the roof, the car parking and these sorts of things. So the fifth one is rent to rent. Now we covered this in fact last week. Um, Ray and I had a chat about various things to do with what's happening in the US but we, we did go into this model quite a bit as it is the predominant model for providers of multi-let space in Manhattan where Ray's based. So check out that episode if you've not already done so. But this is very similar to residential. It's where a company will rent or lease a space. They will divide it up, do whatever they need to do to add value, and then they will sublet it to others. At the moment, in the city centres, people are struggling with that model right now. But when times are good, it can be very good. And it might be something to deploy as a strategy for yourself at some point. It might be a way of testing a market or testing a building. More of the industry, because of what's going on right now, are erring towards sharing the profit with the landlord, which also means the landlord shares some of the risk. And that's that will be around for a while. Eventually, that will firm up a bit, I would say. So the sixth thing is find the tenant first. So this is a popular strategy. 
Very sensible strategy. National or local businesses do have ongoing requirements, whether it's Costa Coffee or Subway or many other brands, even to the person in your local networking meeting who's looking for a home for their expanding business. It's a tried and tested model. You basically go and find the tenant first, find the need, and then go and find a building to satisfy that need. There are even websites that will give you details of what some of the larger brands are looking for. So it's not, it, it's not the old black book thing. There are resources online. So for instance, if you look up um, www.therequirementlist.com, that's therequirementlist.com, it's a good place to have a look. It is a paid-for service, of course. You will get a wee free trial uh, run, I think, on there. But basically, these are places where the brands will list their requirements. So you might pop in your local city or your local town and see who's looking for space there. Now, it may be that right now, because of where we are with the whole market, that some of those um, demands are changing. But nevertheless... When things settle down, these are definitely good places to go and look if you're trying to do this strategy of finding the tenant first. I mean, apart from anything else, finding a tenant first and then going to find the building and then going for finance makes finance much easier because you've got somebody there who says they're actually going to rent the space from you. There's a few more plates spinning, of course, and you have to protect yourself to make sure that um, you're not cut out of the loop, shall we say. And some of the brands will even tell you on their own websites, of course, if you dig around a bit. But just for more local requirements, asking your agents what their customers really need right now or what is popular. Or even another question would be, you know, if you were to provide them with a building at the moment, what is it they really need to help with a specific customer so that they will get results? It'll certainly get you results if you ask those questions. If you don't ask, you don't get. By asking them what they really need, it's going to tell you what you need to go and look for. And you may think to yourself, well, why isn't the agent just going finding it? Of course, they do try, but this market is clear as mud. There are not that many um, transparent parts of this market where you can see everything, which gives you an opportunity to go and find a building that maybe the agent hasn't found yet. The seventh thing, finding the building first. So this is the opposite to the one we just spoke about. This is more my type of strategy, and it's different to the previous option. I go out looking for problem buildings and then try to work out how to make them work in a more sustainable way going forward. So by doing that, I'm basically taking buildings that are already devalued in the market because people don't really know what to do with them. It's a problem buildings, I say. They're not quite sure how to redevelop them or, or even who would be interested in that type of property and that's where you can really add value if you can see through the problems and work out how you can mold it to provide solutions for more modern needs or requirements i love that strategy it's great and it gives you less competition because those problem buildings are usually sitting at the bottom end of the market people don't know what to do with them as they say and also there's less bidding on them there is more work and it's definitely more of an active pursuit, but it can be very rewarding. The eighth one is, do you go for fully occupied or vacant space as a strategy, or are you going for partially vacant space? 
So this comes back to your passive and active question and what your risk factor is. Which strategy is going to suit you best? So passive may well look purely for fully occupied space. They may look for partially vacant space so that they've got some asset management there that they can do something to add value by getting a new tenant in. And they might do that with their agent or their agent may already know of somebody. This is back to agents. Passive definitely tends to be more to do with agents because you need their help. But you might also look at a partially vacant building because you know there's some income there which is going to allow you to leverage for finance for buying it, but also you know that there's space there that you can do something with. And you may find that vacant works even better for you, but finance is just more challenging. So the eighth strategy or strategy to work out is fully occupied, vacant or even partially vacant. What is your occupancy level that you're looking for? The ninth thing is multi-use. Now, this is subtly different from multi-let. It could be, for instance, a shop on the ground floor and residential or even an HMO or house of multiple occupancy above. It could be a mixture of retail to the front, maybe even industrial to the rear, or workshops and office space above. Just because a large high street unit is classified as retail right now doesn't mean that a more sustainable use going forward is a mixed-use strategy with retail remaining but only on the ground floor. Often now with fulfilment being much faster there's often lots of space above retail units especially the sort of older properties on the high streets that's just not being used. There's a lot of opportunities like this right now but you do need to remember there are key building warrant issues to deal with. So, for example, is the fireproofing between the different classifications adequate? Can you make sure it is? Is there a separate entrance or can you create a separate entrance and fire escape for any potential residential space? So there are other factors to consider there. But multi-use, particularly on the high street, is becoming more of a popular strategy. Then the tenth one is just change of use. So this isn't um, too complicated, this one. The principle of this strategy is identifying properties that might suit a better use, basically. Remember in Scotland, for example, we currently have those 11 classifications that I went through earlier on. And a change of use is possible between some classifications, but it's not always automatic, as many listeners will know. A simple change of use strategy can work really well, though. And some companies' investors will specifically take on land or vacant space they think they can get a planning change on and when they do, sometimes after a lot of hard work and even lobbying, they get the change of use and sell the land and buildings on at often a massive increase in value without actually ever even laying a single brick or lifting a finger on the site. However, I have witnessed the complete opposite too. <laughs> one developer that I, or one site I was following, a developer got a change of use from office to supermarket. Huge uplift. The other adjacent plot, this is just across the road, couldn't get change of use for love nor money. In the end, they had to demolish the office building because it was deemed as unsafe. And 10 years later, right now, they still have no income from that site. And it was just opposite the other one where it went from a vacant office building into a large supermarket site. Big uplift. It can be a high-stakes game where winning can be big 
but losing can be paralysing. There are ways to mitigate the risk, of course, and this example was of two companies with deep pockets who could take the risk on, but for you and me, we need to study the rules and guidance for our specific area and make sure, critically, make sure you've got a plan A, B and C, should it not quite work out. The other option is to agree an option with the vendor, but let's not go down that path right now. That's another whole topic. Let's get back on track. So the 11th one, commercial to residential conversions. It's a thing for sure. And in England, permitted development rules allow certain commercial buildings to convert it to residential in terms of planning. We'll still need to stack up from a building warrant point of view. In Scotland, we don't have the same option right now, and other countries will have varying viewpoints on this. You need to ask yourself, though, does it fall within a planning zone that would be more sympathetic to your proposals? Finding examples of what has been achieved before is really helpful with this. Um, Networking, meeting other developers online or in person is a great way to develop new ideas, perhaps pinch some ideas, and learn what is possible. We have achieved change of use of planning on one of our properties um, not too long ago, but in the end, we did not change the use because the ROI as office space was higher than it would have been for residential. And if you're investing for cash flow, this can often be the case. However, if you are aiming for capital uplift, there's little doubt that a change of use to residential will often lift the capital value more than the increased cash flow from letting it as a commercial space. Because as we all know, the more income you're generating, the more value you generate overall as a commercial property. But it might be that the residential side will increase that capital value much more. There are lots of other factors to consider. Not least, if you are planning to sell to realise the capital gain, then you will crystallise a point of tax. This is really important. So it does depend on your overall strategy. Cash flow will help with life, but also future projects, because of the ability of it to service more debt. It's one of the key things that debt providers look for. Apart from the um, covenant, if you have have a client in the building, but if you don't have a client in the building that's vacant, they want to know, can you service the debt? Well, if you've just gone and sold your asset and you've got a lump sum. Maybe you could buy it all cash. Great. But you can't service the debt from the income because you've sold the income and cashed it in, which is meant you've had to have a tax, of course. So it does depend on what you're wanting to do. So the twelfth one is new build. This is the last one on my list. I'm sure you guys will have other ones. But this is often when a raw piece of land or an obsolete building has passed its best. And returns here tend to be between as low as maybe 5% and up to maybe 20% ROI, but usually around about 10%. Usually these things aren't built unless they're getting around that point, unless we're getting to a higher end of a bubble. For me, I've always found that buying secondhand and refurbing for, say, £300 a square metre versus building out £1,500 a square metre, if you're lucky, for a new build, this is office space, immediately puts you an advantage when there's a crisis in the economy, because you have more room to manoeuvre. If you've built a building for £1,500 a square metre, there's a certain rental you're going to have to get to be able to cover your debt. But if you've built a building, or should I say refurbed a building, for £300 a square metre just down the road, 
then it's going to be infinitely more maneuverable when it comes to crisis points because your starter point, your entry point is so much lower. But of course, horses for courses, isn't it? And it depends what sector and where you're targeting. I've seen industrial new build work really well. And it's a market that we'd like to expand into. But I'm often put off by the returns. So it's finding those sites where your build value is going to give you a good square foot value for rental. Now, that's the 12. And all these strategies will be influenced by various factors personal to you. So, for instance, your access, or at least your perceived access, to finance the time that you have available to actually get involved in these different strategies. Uh, it'll also be affected by what your target market area actually has in terms of demand. So for instance, if you're an active investor, that may mean that really you need your geography to be a bit closer to home. And that reduces the amount of areas you can look at. And that target area, you're going to have to look at the demand and what's going on there. The fourth thing is going to affect this, again, a personal thing, but the fourth thing is your self-belief. It's a huge influencing factor on what you can achieve in this market. And the fifth thing is your connections. Okay, that is important. And a lack of them just means it'll take a bit longer, but don't be put off by that. And you might be surprised about who you know in this sector, but I've never actually really spoken to them about it. So for instance, it might be um, parents of if you've got kids and you've got clubs and things, you might bump into parents, other parents there. When you ask them what they do, you realise they're in this industry. Or it might be some people you've already connected to on LinkedIn or Facebook, maybe even your accountant. It might be old school friends or university or college friends that you've just not actually switched in your mind and thought, hold on, these people are in that sector. Remember, you're not looking for opinions, though. You are looking for facts which is difficult when so much in this industry is opinion. <laughs> you need somebody who's pragmatic but not negative. And you need connections who are positive but with their feet on the ground. Experience is what you're really looking for, though. An actual sales evidence to see what willing sellers and buyers are accepting right now. That trumps any expert's opinion. Because no matter how scientific you get at valuing a property which I went into in a recent podcast, it's about what a willing seller and a willing buyer are going to accept. That, at the end of the day, is the best evidence you're going to find. So, for a quick summary, we need to be aware of different sectors within commercial, right? So here's the five sectors again. Retail, office, leisure, industrial and storage, and then everything else. Things like dental surgeries, more specific uses. That's in the other miscellaneous section. Secondly, here's the summary of 11 different strategies that you can adopt. And it doesn't have to be one, there can be several. First one, active. Are you an active investor? Are you a passive investor? It's the second one. The third one, single-let properties. The third one, multi-let or CMO. The fifth one is the rent-to-rent -rent model. Perhaps you need cash flow right now. The sixth one is find the tenant first. The next one is find a problem building first. The eighth one is fully occupied or purchase stage or partial tenanted. Which element are you looking for? Are you looking for full occupation or are you looking for partial occupation? Multi-use rather than multi-let, that is. Change of use or planning gain, which is the tenth one. 
And then the 11th was commercial to residential conversions, or even resi to commercial conversions. And then the last one was new build, where perhaps you're building a row of, well, it could be anything, industrial units, small industrial units, large industrial units, office building, whatever. It's taking an existing brownfield site often, or even an existing building with space to provide an extension, and building from scratch. Of course, this list is not exhaustive, and there will be lots of other strategies that you could employ, or even a combination. And if you have any alternative strategies that I've missed out, then share them with us on the Facebook group, which is connected to the Facebook page. So you just need to go on to the usual www.facebook.com forward slash commercial property investor. We'll get you to the Facebook page. And then if you click on the link to the group and you get in there, you'll be able to ask these sorts of questions in there or indeed provide the strategies that you're looking at. So thank you for your reviews and questions. I will be recording a Q&A podcast soon where I'll be covering a few different shorter topics led by listeners' questions. I have a few mounting up now. I know it's noisy out there just now, but as investors and entrepreneurs, all the disruption should be getting you up out of your bed right now, ready to go, because there's lots of opportunities coming up. All the best and have a great week in commercial. enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast. And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be your first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.